Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Today we're sharing a conversation on the dark history of eugenics and the Constitution. Earlier this month, the Constitution Center hosted a screening of the documentary, A Dangerous Idea, Eugenics, Genetics, and the American Dream. After the screening, NCC President Jeffrey Rosen moderated a panel featuring the film's co-writer, Andrew Kimbrell, author Daniel Ogrant, and legal and bioethics scholars Paul Lombardo and Dorothy Roberts. Here's Jeff. Let's begin at the beginning, as the movie did. And Daniel, you're over there, so you can start us off. There, there's so much to talk about in this history, but give us a sense of the political and legal context that produced that North Carolina law that the court upheld in 1927 and Buck and Bell. I'm always stunned by the statistics, so I'll just put them on the table when we begin. Uh, legislatures in 16 states between 1907 and 1933 passed laws authorizing the sterilization of defective people, defined loosely as idiots and imbeciles. During the next five years, seven of the state sterilization laws were challenged as unconstitutional by opponents of eugenics, and lower courts struck all seven of them down on the grounds that they were cruel or unusual punishment, or they violated the equal protection by allowing sterilization of people in state institutions but not others, or that they violated the due process rights as we saw about those, uh, those remarkable sisters who had no opportunity to challenge their designation. Nevertheless, the states continued to pass the laws. Uh, 14 more states passed sterilization laws between 23 and 25. The Supreme Court upheld them in the Buck and Bell case, 1927, and then the floodgate was opened and uh, as many as uh, 13 more states adopted sterilization laws after Buck and Bell, bringing the total to 30. It wasn't until the 1942 Skinner case in the middle of World War II that the Supreme Court began to question these laws, but they remained on the books until, as we saw, uh, the 1980s, and as recently as 1985, the sterilization of the mentally uh, uh, challenge was allowed in 19 states. Uh, I hope that wasn't too long an intro, but those statistics are striking. So Daniel, give us a sense, please, of how this remarkable movement started, why it was considered a, a progressive uh, movement, and how some of the leading lights of American progressivism supported it. Well, I'm going to hand it off to Paul shortly, because this is really his specialty. Uh, but I'll go way back, if you don't mind, which is to say uh, to the publication of Origin of the Species in, in 1859 and the Darwinian Revolution, which changes the nature of the way that science is perceived, particularly in the UK, and then it spreads to the US as well. Uh, it, it is the first real challenge to the what has come to be known as the creationist view uh, of our origins. And it subtly buried within this revolutionary and, as we know, you know absolutely valid notions, the idea that we're not all derived from the same people. We're not all derived from Adam and Eve. And if we're not derived from Adam and Eve and we're not related, some of us are better than others of us. And it was a, the idea of eugenics itself was something that was formulated by actually a first cousin of Darwin's, 
named Francis Galton, a very interesting and peculiar gentleman scientist of the 19th century who uh, he did studies of, uh, he did a beauty map of England where he figured that the least attractive women in, 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 in the UK were in Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, he conducted a series of studies called the uh, frequency of fidget where he would watch people in an audience and he'd note how often they fidgeted under what circumstances. He did some important things like uh, fingerprinting, uh, 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 statistical analysis. These were all uh, among his creations. In 1883, he named eugenics and his idea was primarily what came to be known as positive eugenics, which is improving the species by finding the best and having the best breed to the best. An idea that goes back to Plato, obviously. Uh, but in his particular case, his, his first major recommendation was that uh, the uh, UK would find the most talented, uh, handsomest, beautiful, uh, most morally upright young people and match them up in marriages. And there would be a wedding ceremony in Westminster Abbey presided over by Queen Victoria, and then all of these couples, 5,000 couples, would get a certain amount of, uh, I think it was 3,000 pounds a year for life, so they could get busy doing to what, what needed to be done, making a better England. That's the beginning. It gets distorted. It comes to the US basically around 1900 to 1910 at, at Cold Spring Harbor. We saw the, the, the laboratory there. I think that I'll step aside now and hand the ball off to Paul and catch it later when we get to the immigration aspect. So fascinating. Thank you for uh, that remarkable introduction. So Paul, you've written an acclaimed study of Buck v. Bell, and I must say there are uh, few uh, uh, books uh, that receive the accolades that uh, yours uh, has, but uh, it's been praised as the finest study of, of Buck v. Bell that exists. And Buck v. Bell is infamous for, uh, as we saw uh, in the movie, Oliver Wendell Holmes's uh, statement, it's better for all the worlds if we cut the fallopian tubes rather than uh, allowing uh, degenerates to reproduce. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. Eight to one, the only dissenter is Pierce Butler, a Catholic. Uh, tell us about why the case was eight to one. And, the, and the, these are progressives from my hero, Louis Brandeis, is joining this decision. Uh, another hero, Chief Justice Taft, who, as uh, Daniel writes in his book, vetoed a 1913 immigration bill because he was pro-immigration, but nevertheless saw the case as constitutionally uncontroversial, set the stage, the legal stage, for why this was an eight to one decision, why Butler dissented, and what else we should make of the Buck v. Bell case? Well, I'll start with Carrie Buck. Carrie Buck is the main character in this, in this drama. Carrie is a 17-year-old girl in Charlottesville, Virginia. She finds herself in the unfortunate position of being pregnant. Um, the baby's father has disappeared. Uh, she is turned out by her foster parents. Her own mother is nowhere, nowhere to be found. And she uh, eventually, very quickly, is sent to the Virginia Colony for the Epileptic and the Feeble-Minded down in Amherst, Virginia, just south of Charlottesville. Uh, she meets her mother there. She finds that she's also been committed. Um, Carrie is designated, as her mother was, as being feeble-minded, uh, being sexually promiscuous. You'll see a pattern here as these cases come around. Being someone who couldn't control herself and who would have children just like herself. Uh, she was called a moral degenerate because she did have that baby and she wasn't married. And then a, a Red Cross nurse uh, visiting sees the baby and reports back, there's something, something peculiar about it, I don't know what it is, but there's something not right there. And based on those observations on Carrie's situation and on her mother's uh, being there at the colony uh, near Lynchburg, 
Um, she has chosen to be the test case for a brand new law, which goes into effect just as she arrives in the summer of 1924. Virginia passes this law really as a way to protect uh, the doctor who wanted it written. Uh, he had been sterilizing people for years, but uh, got sued, didn't like that, wanted immunity, wanted to be able to do what he thought was right, particularly to get those women off the streets, people like Carrie Buck and her mother. And so Carrie goes uh, um, really like a lamb to slaughter. She is really only a 17-year-old. She is, is, uh, has gone to school for about six years, done reasonably well, but she has no one to defend her. They appoint a lawyer to defend her, pay him quite handsomely. Uh, the case goes to the trial court there in Charles, excuse me, in um, Amherst, Virginia, and the judge finds that, in fact, the law has been uh, adequately written, that she has received due process, she was represented by a lawyer, and therefore that the law is constitutional. It's then appealed, and it goes to the Virginia Supreme Court, which in turn also endorses it. Um, the lawyers who brought this case were very concerned that it not be overturned, and they wanted to go all the way, so they took the case then to the United States Supreme Court, where it was met, as you've just heard, by some real luminaries, uh, certainly Justice Taft, who the only, the only justice, chief justice who had ever been president of the United States. We're not likely to see that again. Um, he, he, was, he was met by, um, he was met by uh, uh, Justice Brandeis, of course, was also on the court. A number of other justices that you've uh, probably never heard of um, who are less, less famous, um, but the one that you have heard of is Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., really known as the god who had come down from Olympus to his, to his admirers. You've heard lots about him. He gives us the great phrases of constitutional law about not yelling fire in a crowded theater, among other things. And so when this case comes through, he also uh, gives us a line worthy of remembrance in describing the Buck family, very briefly talks about Carrie Buck, uh, one of the poor, shiftless, uh, poor white trash of the South, she's called in some of the court papers. And so he, pointing out her mother's problems, um, her own purported uh, deficiencies, and the comments made about her baby, he says, the law seems to be constitutional. It does all that we can in matters like this. Uh, we have a statute. We have a we have precedent from the from the vaccination cases. We can vaccinate people. Well, if we can vaccinate them, we can sterilize them. And he draws a line under all that and says of the Buck family, uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And so Carrie becomes the first person of some 8,000 who were sterilized there in Virginia, and as you've already heard, uh, thousands more around the country all the way up until the 1980s. It's just remarkable. The 1905 vaccination case, right, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the right that was being violated there, that the police power of the state was held to be sufficient to ensure the welfare of the community, you need to be vaccinated for smallpox in those days, right? But your complaint was that's an error because I don't want to be vaccinated. That was what its issue. That Oliver Wendell Holmes felt that that was legally equivalent to having your basic right Appropriation taken away in one sentence is, uh, you know, Paul, you had a great, you said it may be the most extraordinary anomaly in, in, in Supreme Court history that he would make that association. But it didn't seem to have any difficulty making the leap between vaccination and sterilization, and even less difficulty uh, justifying the fact that this was really a, a attacking what later became known as a fundamental right. Um, the issue in the case, though, was whether or not the 
whether or not due process would allow for a state to pass laws like this, uh, laws that would um, um, allow someone to be represented, allow someone to challenge the order of the state, uh, and to challenge the evidence that was put forth uh, against them. Holmes says that's what laws are supposed to do. We, we execute people, we send them off to war, people die. The state has the power to do that. And if that's something we can do, we can certainly ask people like Kerry Buck for these lesser sacrifices, as he said. Uh, and so the case was really about uh, due process. Holmes said she's gotten due process, um, that's all you get. Um, the case has many more turns in it, which I won't burden you with now, but it was a sham. Her lawyer was literally working for the other side, and no evidence was put into the record to support Carrie's um, lack of problems, for that matter. She was, she was a perfectly uh, um, healthy young woman. Uh, not that that would have justified what happened to her, or what, not, that, not that if she were disabled it would have. Nevertheless, there was, this case was a fraud. Dorothy Roberts, if I could. Um, Holmes was an enthusiastic eugenicist. And after the case came down, he went back and wrote to his friend, Harold Lasky, this morning I upheld the law mandating the sterilization of imbeciles. Nothing I've done all week has given me so much pleasure. Right. On the other hand, the whole, it was an eight to one case. It was constitutionally uncontroversial. The court hadn't yet recognized a right of autonomy. It took the 40s to bring that about. As constitutional lawyers, was Buck correctly decided at the time, or what are we to make of the fact that no justices, except for the conservative Catholics, seem to find it constitutionally problematic? Well, I think what you have to understand is that they accepted eugenicist logic. And that's why it was easy for them to disregard the harm to Carrie Buck. If they thought that there was a great harm to her, then they may have ruled differently. The reason they focused so much on procedural due process is because they didn't see any other problem with the statute. And the reason why they didn't see any harm in sterilizing Carrie Buck was not only because Holmes thought it was the best thing for society because he had bought into eugenicist thinking, but also he argued it was good for her. His main argument was that it is better for feeble-minded people to be sterilized now than for their children to end up in prisons and to starve to death because it, it was assumed that they, because of their defective genes, they were going to become these people who couldn't survive in society. And so the way he framed what he was deciding was something that was to her benefit. And in fact, on the equal protection claim, which was a claim that it was unequal to, to sterilize people who were confined to public mental institutions, but not people who were in private ones. That was the equal protection claim. Holmes said, well, we're doing good for these people. So if the government wants to do good for the people in, mental, in public mental institutions and not others, that's okay. Again, they didn't even see it as the, a classification that harmed the supposedly feeble-minded people who were being sterilized. And, and he said, look, once we sterilize her, she could leave. And so they, they twisted the idea that you would put someone in this institution in order to sterilize her into, if we sterilize her, we're doing her a benefit, and now she can go freely into the world without the fear that she's going to produce another generation of imbeciles. 
And so you really have to wrap your head around this logic that turns government oppression into a benefit for the very victims of its oppression. And that goes back to, that's one of the reasons why eugenicist thinking is, is so dangerous, because it can even make it seem as if violence against people is not only good for society, but it's good for them. That's a very vivid uh, way of putting us in the shoes of these progressives and helping us see how a law that seems to us the greatest of all constitutional dignities would be uncontroversial to them. And you remind us that if you accept that logic, you almost do need some notion of a fundamental right to personal autonomy in order to resist the law. And that just was not part of the doctrine at the time. Yes, that's right. I don't think that's an excuse, though, because it could have been an opportunity to create it in that case. So yes. uh, that that's not, it, it could be that the court would have decided that even though the state had the police power to impose vaccinations, that this wasn't the same as just forcing someone to undergo a vaccination. So there were, would be ways of distinguishing it. Again, it's the, this dangerous logic of eugenics that blames people who are actually the victims of inequality for their position, you know, that says you're the threat to society, not the people who are creating these unequal structures in society. That's a very important point. It could have gone the other way. And indeed, all seven of those state courts did go the other exactly. way before the Supreme exactly. Court heard it. So there yeah. was really a shameful moment in the Supreme Court's history. They don't say in Buck v. Bell, right? They don't say, here's the science, here's the molecular biology, here's what we know. They go, experience, this is the term they use. Experience yeah. teaches us that this must be hereditary. Yeah. Remember, this is 1927. DNA was not even discovered until 1953. All of these crimes that were done in the name of the gene were done with no science. There was no scientific basis for this. It was an idea that there must be something in the body called a gene that they had not found any embodiment that must be causing all of these things, which makes it to me even worse that, there were, that they did this sheerly on prejudice. They didn't even have science to back it up. Dan Daniel, um, uh, take us back to the immigration law of 24, three years before Buck and Bell. Why did it pass? What were its consequences? And how did it influence the Nazis? Well, let me back up a, a bit and, and, and elaborate on something that both Dor Dorothy and Andrew have said. Um, there was science. It was just junk science. But it was promulgated by the leading scientific institutions in the country. It came out of Harvard and the American Museum of Natural History and the Cold Spring Laboratory, sponsored by the Carnegie Institute of Washington and at Princeton. Uh, the people behind it, the, the, the president of MIT in the 1890s, you know, was the one, he began by saying that the people of Eastern Europe, they lived like swine, they were swine, they weren't the same as people. It was this perfect marriage of really what was at that time the progressive ideal. Government using its grand authority and the, the, the brilliance of science to make society better and it was then quickly distorted. Uh, and you think of the people who supported eugenics to vary, varying degrees. We saw Margaret Sanger's picture up there, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Edward A. Ross, not remembered today, was a socialist. Oh, Norman Thomas supported eugenics uh, to, to a degree. Edward A. Ross was a, a very close friend of Senator LaFollette of, of Wisconsin. He was a head of the American Sociological Association. He was later the national chairman of the ACLU. And he said at one point about the uh, Slavic people that they will endure, endure conditions that a white man could not survive. And it was this notion of a separateness 
uh, of certain racial groups that led to the immigration law. I jumped way ahead. 1916, a book is published that brings together the anti-immigration movement that has been bubbling for years and the eugenics movement, which is just coming into public prominence, uh, a book by a horrible and fascinating man named Madison Grant. And bringing these th two things together, it changes the notion of eugenics that not only must we keep that individual with the X uh, on, on his jacket out of the country because he's blind, he's deaf, he's feeble-minded epileptic, but all the people of his race, of his ethnicity are as well. So in 1924, this comes to a hideous head, um, prefigured by a statement that appeared in, of all places, Good Housekeeping magazine in 1921 uh, that said that uh, now that biological laws have proven that the Eastern and Southern Europeans are inferior, we have to keep them out of the country to protect our bl bloodstream. Author Calvin Coolidge, about to be sworn in as vice president. By, by 1924, the science that isn't science is so widely accepted that in the case of the, the Supreme Court justices, they don't even look at it. And in the case of huge majorities in Congress, they accept it. And if you read the debate of the time, which is a very, very discouraging debate, it is the American bloodstream, the American purity, invoked over and over and over again. There were 226,000 Italians, on average, who came into the US in the three years before the 1924 law. The quota reduced it to fewer than 4,000 a year. And it did the same to all the Eastern and Southern European groups. Wow. Um, what was the um, legal change that led from Buck in 27 to the Skinner case in 1942, where William O. Douglas, noting the Nazi atrocities, recognizes an equal protection argument against the sterilization laws, and maybe say a bit, if you will, about the influence of the uh, American laws on the Third Reich. It turns out that um, the Buck case really turns the tide. As, as Jeff said earlier, the direction of the law in the states was going against eugenics, was certainly going against sterilization. Um, Buck case changes that, and many states pass laws in the wake of, of the 27 decision. Um, and everything gears up for sterilization uh, going into the late 20s and certainly into the early 30s. Uh, it turns out by the early 30s, as, it's, as we were told on the film, um, Hitler comes into power and makes this the very first thing that he wants passed. So his law for the prevention of hereditarily diseased offspring is passed in 1933, goes into effect in 34. Um, there is a direct line between certainly Harry Laughlin's work both in the Buck case as well as in the Nazi law. Um, many people are sterilized and then the war breaks out. Uh, 39, uh, the, the Second World War breaks out. 42, the United States gets in and lots of doctors are sent off. People are starting to question to a certain extent whether these laws work the way the eugenicists told them that they did. Um, but it doesn't stop sterilizations. The case comes to the United States Supreme Court um, from Oklahoma. Uh, a challenge to a sterilization statute that, that um, allowed for, mandated the sterilization of recidivist criminals, people who were repeat criminals in the prisons in Oklahoma. The prisoners challenged this, a uh, fascinating case by itself um, because it involved some, some great characters. Uh, it gets to the Supreme Court at a time when America is starting to realize what's going on in Europe. There are reports of, of uh, people being killed. There are all kinds of reports of atrocities. 
and the Supreme Court justices are very aware of this. The case is assigned to Justice uh, William O. Douglas. Um, Douglas has a full um, um, package of material that he can draw from for arguments, and he decides really on his own to focus on equal protection. And he says, here we have a criminal from Oklahoma, Jack Skinner, and Jack Skinner has been sent to prison for, um, one of his crimes is he's a chicken thief. He stole chickens. Um, the Oklahoma statute that allows for him, mandates for him to be sterilized, says that you can, if you, if you have these felonies, which was a, a theft of more than $200 at the time, you are, um, you are liable to being, to being taken into the operating room. Uh, Jack Skinner's lawyer opposed that and pointed out that there were, there, were, there were gaps in the law, there were exceptions. If you violated prohibition, that didn't count. You could still drink. Um, if you were an embezzler, that didn't count. If you had committed some kind of political crime like bribery, well, that didn't count either. Um, so there were certain crimes that were penalized with sterilization and others not. And uh, Justice Douglas seized on that point and said, what is it that's different from being a thief and stealing a chicken and being a clerk and sticking your hand in the till in the bank? He didn't seem, he said there's no, there's no logic in science or uh, or for that matter, jurisprudence to make that distinction. The, the thief in the bank goes free, the chicken thief is sterilized. This is not fair. This is a violation of, of equal protection. Uh, the undertone of the, of the case court really was echoing what was going on in Europe, echoing the notion that, that uh, and, and this comes up in one of the concurring opinions, echoing the idea that uh, unequal application of the law based on class was also something that these sterilization laws uh, violated. And so the Skinner case strikes down the issue of sterilizing people in prison while it lays, it leaves on the table the idea that feeble-mindedness, as they say, is different. And the Buck case is never overturned for that reason. Uh, uh, so Dorothy, was, in that sense, was Skinner uh, decided as persuasively as it might have been. After all, the law does distinguish between different types of crimes. Should it have found an autonomy right instead? And yeah. how does it fare in retrospect? Well, Douglas does have in dictum a statement that procreation is one of the basic civil rights of man. And he also points out that in certain government hands, sterilization could wipe out an entire race of people. That's not the basis of the holding because he does not hold that this violates the substantive due process fundamental right to have children and therefore doesn't overturn Buck versus Bell, but it's got great language in it, at least, of this recognition of the importance of procreation and the political weapon that can be used against whole groups of people by deeming them inferior and appropriate subjects of state sterilization. So the there's good, strong language in it. Of course, it's good that the court struck down this obviously biased law, uh, but um, it could have been a stronger case if the court explicitly struck down Buck v. Bell on grounds that eugenics sterilization violates a fundamental right of human beings to have children. That would have been a different kind of case and would have been a stronger
basis for challenging other grounds for which the state continued then to sterilize people against their will. And of course, it wasn't until, uh, as you suggest, it wasn't until later, until the 60s in the cases like Griswold versus Connecticut that the court yeah. begins to recognize a fundamental right to procreation, which culminates in the line of cases uh, that uh, include Roe versus Wade. Right, right. Mm -hmm. um, Andrew, the court strikes down the sterilization law in 1942, but as we, the film shows so vividly, sterilization continued. The Nixon story is shocking and not well known, but uh, many of us did know that sterilization laws remained on the books until 1985, if not longer. So tell us about what happened from the 40s through the 80s and how all of this continued under the radar screen. Uh, on the Skinner case, it was a three strikes you're out. If you had three felonies that were 20 bucks or more, you get sterilized. If you have a white, so it was blue collar crime versus white collar crime. Blue collar, you get sterilized. White collar, oh, you're fine. Political crimes and the thing. And actually, one of the concurring opinions, Judge Jackson, who later became uh, the chief prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials, he actually uses a wonderful expression in his concurrence. He says, we cannot have these biological experiments by a dominant class on one that is not dominant because we risk basically being what we're seeing in, in Nazi Germany. So, and he later became a chief prosecutor in the Nuremberg trial. So it's just a little side thing on the Skinner case. That's, I teach it, and in the casebook, they don't excerpt the Jackson opinion, and thank you for calling our attention to that. That was incredibly prescient. And these are all the states that did it, right? We had never had a federal law, as we say, in A Dangerous Idea of the movie. We, we never had a federal law. So Nixon's faced with a problem, which is that during the Great Society, they found that uh, the aid to families dependent children was actually not being administered in a legal way in the South. They were not allowing many, many women who could have been, and families that could have been helped, help because they didn't want to give them the money because they wanted them in these low paying jobs. So hundreds of thousands, over 300,000 new people on the welfare rolls because of that. Well, Nixon gets into power in 1968, that terrible year of all the assassinations and everything else then, on a orderless year. And he says, we've got to do something about welfare. Well, here's one answer. Take women who are on welfare, whether they be uh, Native American communities or you know, uh, African Americans, and say, unless you stop having babies, you're not going to get your welfare check. So for their very first time, they say, as you saw in the movie, you know, listen, we're going to be using these, these funds to sterilize people. And, and then we see coercion. You know, we see people who are not having informed consent. And people are actually against, well, this is the first federal, federal sterilization, not state now, federal. And it goes across the country. And the guidelines that Dr. Hearn, that actually would, that would have prevented the great abuses, were actually held back by the White House. We don't know what their purposes were, but they just said our purposes. Election was coming up. Were they afraid of that? We don't know. But it's because they didn't go out. The, wealth, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, by the way, was the, got a hold of this case. And they actually filed the litigation. When they filed the litigation, there were no regulations yet. They were still being in that warehouse. So all of the first questions they ask are questions of due process. They're constitutional questions. Well, Weinberger, Casper Weinberger, who then was head of Health and Human Services, he said, oh, we don't want to do the constitutional questions. That could overturn Buck v. Bell, by the way. Then we could really get into some serious trouble, right? So he says they quickly get these you know, sort of ad hoc regulations in place. Nowhere near as good as the first ones. So then the case doesn't become about the constitutional questions. It becomes about the adequacy of the regulations. See how they, you switch it from these big questions to whether Weinbergers and, of course, Gerhard Gazelle, 
you know, in, in DC, uh, Discord says, these regulations are terrible. These regulations don't really protect anybody. You're not going to be able to spend a single dollar more until you get, give me good regulations. And it took a couple years, but finally those regulations came into place. So again, these constitutional questions that would have overturned Buck v. Bell never were dealt with by the court. The court said, I don't have to deal with those because I can just deal with this by dealing with these regulations. And the final regulations did, thankfully, say no minors, you know, no people that were because of any particular being mentally challenged, they can't be sterilized at all and had uh, fairly strict consent requirements for adults um, because of that Ralph case. It's stunning. Uh, you could teach a course, of course, on Nixon and the Constitution, but you've given us an entire <laughs> new uh, seminar week <laughs> to uh, emphasize that. I didn't even include the Nixon. I didn't include because I wasn't even aware of it. It was only in making this movie that we that the team became aware of this, and it's really shocking that it's not better known. Saving Buck v. Bell is a remarkable uh, ambition of the administration. Paul, you wanted to jump in? Well, I, I'm not so sure that that had the Supreme Court dealt with this in Ralph versus Weinberger, which was '74. Um, it didn't get to the Supreme Court, but had it gotten there, Roe versus Wade was in 73. I'm not sure that the Roe court would have been any happier with uh, overturning Buck than anyone else was, because in fact, Buck is last cited in a footnote in Roe versus Wade as being one of the exceptions to the general rule of reproductive freedom. Before, um, D D Dan, Dan, you end the book around the 1930s and around the Holocaust, and this is Holocaust Remembrance Day as it happens. So before we you know, and uh, too much in the present, I'd like you to tell us what else you want us to know about the influence of the eugenics movement on the Third Reich, uh, the surprising stories you found about enthusiasts for the movements, including the celebrated editor Maxwell Perkins, and, 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 and what else we should know about this. Really well, uh, uh, just briefly on Perkins, Do, how many people here know the name Maxwell Perkins? Uh, you know, the most celebrated publisher in American history, the editor who brought Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, uh, and so many others uh, uh, to, uh, to, to the world's attention. Uh, Perkins graduates from Harvard in 1907, and his first job is working in a settlement house in Boston, teaching English to Russian and Polish, largely Jewish immigrants. Um, he then finds his way to New York, gets hired at Scribner on the recommendation of one of his Harvard professors who says to Charles Scribner, I knew all four of his grandparents. End of recommendation, hired. Uh, in 1916, Maxwell Perkins is handed a man this manuscript by Madison Grant, the man I mentioned before as being so peculiar and so wonderfully interesting. Um, and he edits the book called The Passing of the Great Race. The key paragraph in that race, in that book, says uh, that the marriage between any of the two, uh, any two uh, different uh, of the um, European ethnic groups. Uh, will always revert to the lower. So if a Nordic marries an Alpine, the child will be Alpine. If an Alpine marries the disgraceful Mediterraneans, the child will be a Mediterranean. And the marriage between any of the three European groups and a Jew produces a Jew. Uh, this was really kind of the key moment in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the merger of the anti-immigration movement um, and the eugenics movement. And it became a, uh, so broadly accepted, the people, I mentioned Coolidge's article before, it was accepted science by all but a very few people who did speak out about it, primarily the anthropologist Franz Boas, but they were ignored because the credentials, that was another part of the progressive movement. Credentials meant so damn much, and the credentials were there. Perkins went on to publish many such books, 
in, in uh, Scott Berg's prize-winning biography of Maxwell Perkins, this isn't mentioned, not a word of it. It's history that, like so much that's been discussed, so much of what Andrew's shown, just gets shoved under the carpet, the people who are involved in doing this sort of thing. Um, it's, you know, I spent nearly five years on this book, and living with these people was not fun. Um, they're not charming. Uh, they did some horrible things, but it's a story that we need to know. We really need to know. And, and many of them were charming, but just monsters. Yeah, the, monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I could just add one dimension to this, in addition to the marriage between eugenics and anti-immigration was the marriage between eugenics and white supremacy and Jim Crow. Jim Crow was arising as the regime in the South and a kind of regime like it, although not enforced by law in the North. And the in 1924, when Virginia passed the law we've been talking about in Buck versus Bell, on the very same day, it passed the Racial Integrity Act that barred white people from marrying anybody other than a white person. And that kind of hierarchy you mentioned, at the very bottom of it was black people. So if any of those white people married a black person, that was the worst crime. That would be the mongrelization of the white race. And so it's, it's really, really important to see how eugenicists that were enforcing policies that were supposed to improve society by keeping certain people from having children were arm in arm with white supremacists who were also enforcing policies to keep a pure white race and to, which was of course, linked to keeping black people separate from white people. And talking about US Supreme Court cases, the latest one, even after Skinner versus Oklahoma, was Loving versus Virginia, which the US Supreme Court didn't pass and didn't hold until 1967 was when it finally struck down bans on interracial marriage. And so that's even later. The, the hesitation of the US Supreme Court to touch interracial marriage is evident in correspondence among the judges and also in the litigation strategies because Southerners were so averse to the mixing of the races. And so it, I just want everybody to see these connections between anti-immigration, eugenics, and white supremacy all of which we can see in politics today as well. It, yeah. it, it's a crucial point, and you're so right to stress the fact that the court waited uh, more 13 years from 1954 when Brown versus Board right. of Education yeah. was decided until Loving because Felix Frankfurter thought that the country wasn't ready. That, yeah. as you said, that the yeah. South would so resist uh, striking down the anti-miscegenation laws mm -hmm. that it, it should just wait for prudential reasons, mm -hmm. which is the overwhelming, what, what's, I'm glad, aren't you glad you showed up tonight, ladies and gentlemen? This is a very de sad, depressing topic, but it's shocking to realize how widespread the public support for these yeah. laws was. And Andrew, that's such a powerful beginning and end of the movie, the Hearn Sisters African-American Women 
uh, obviously, the effect of these Nixon policies, which were designed to discriminate against the poor, were felt most heavily by African Americans. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the second wave was almost entirely people of color and, uh, and, and purposeful in mm -hmm. order to deal with this welfare problem, which is the first thing Nixon said th that he was going to deal with. And by the way, and, 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 and Dan will connect me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, well, they didn't uh, actually bring in a new immigration law that actually got rid of the quotas, I believe, until 1965. I think that was, that was during... 1965, just 65, so that was... 41 years of the law of So it's not just the Supreme Court. It's Congress didn't say this is... Even after the Holocaust, said, oh, no, we're still going to leave all those quotas in place. And I, you know, in the movie, we go back, and a dangerous idea, we go back, and we say, you know what, this is not just 1920s. This is, goes right back to the founding of this country. This country is supposedly based on all or equal and getting rid of the biology is destiny of the aristocracy in Europe, that of all the other past recorded history of the leaders, you know, royal blood, and, and you, you know, the, your, your biology determined your social outcome, your social position, even your character, you know, criminal or not. We were supposed to get rid of that. We were supposed to be saying no. But actually, if you look from the very beginning, right, we were biologically, that, that infected that biological determinism right from the beginning because we said, white men, right? We get all the rights of citizenship. Oh, you're a woman, biology? Oh, sorry. Many of the most basic aspects of citizenship, including whether you can vote, that didn't happen until August 1920. 1970, 1920, okay? And then as far as uh, the slave population or the Native American population, you weren't even people at all right. because of your biology. Yeah. And before we used genetics and eugenics, we use things like you know, craniometry to say the, the, the skulls of you know, black people are smaller yeah. or Native Americans. Yeah. They used phrenology. They used a lot of other pseudosciences before the pseudoscience of, of genetic determinism. So this battle between this founding inequality and the dream of equality is this battle that's been going on from the very beginning, this two and a half, almost two and a half centuries now of trying to get closer and closer to the dream and then all these regressive forces who say, no, we're actually pretty okay without founding inequality. That defends us from any kind of political will to get more equality because it's biological. You can't change that. So this is a, 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 this, these two forces have been at play for a very long time with eugenics only being one very large and important, but as we can see in today's politics, only one aspect of this longer you know, effort of equality and trying to fight against this biological determinism you know, versus saying, hey, we are diverse and we can change our destinies and, and everyone should have the opportunity to do that versus being viewed as biologically inferior and not capable of doing that. That's a powerful distinction, uh, biological determinism versus the ideal that all people are equal and can choose our destinies. And you're right to stress just the dark history throughout the 19th century of these genetic distinctions. And in the Civil War exhibit, you'll see the same heroic Justice John Marshall Harlan who objected to the segregation laws in Plessy versus Ferguson, the lone dissenter from the court's decision upholding uh, segregation laws in 1896 says, uh, of course, we're not arguing for complete equality. There's a, a great race <laughs> over in uh, the Orient. They're known as the Ch Ch Chinese, and we've got to keep them out of America, and the immigration laws don't allow Chinese people in, and that's good because they would really harm American integrity. It just, the mind spins because it's, the history is so unfamiliar, but it's urgently important to learn it. And you're all eager to learn it. And look at all these wonderful <laughs> questions. And I know our panelists will be as blown away as I always am by the rigor and excellence of the questions from the audience. And here I'm going to just ask, oh, they're so good. Um, 
Well, the, the first, oh, you're going to love this. And we only have, okay. So the, the first one is, uh, Daniel, I'll ask you, since eugenics was a cornerstone of progressivism, how can we defang the idea that progress is always good and, and say more about the fact that the progressive religious denominations, Jewish, Christian, and Protestants, were enthusiastically pro-eugenics? It was only the more conservative denominations. I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, yeah. the, uh, the, what we call progressivism today is a different animal from the progressivism where the word was coined. Um, progressivism then, which, which sought to improve society, uh, was profoundly anti-democratic. It was the smart people and the rich people who, it would, who would decide how to improve society. Uh, Margaret Sanger, her, her, part of her eugenic campaign um, was, well, look at these slums. The slums are terrible. If we you know, give them birth control, then they won't reproduce. It wasn't directed at the women on Park Avenue. Uh, so to make the, the leap from, from our, that situation to our current situation is for me a, a difficult one. I think that there is the lesson of always questioning expertise. However, right now I'm really dependent on expertise to keep this planet from burning up. Um, so it's a confused and as you can see, I'm very confused about it and can't answer your question at all. <laughs> But Jeffy, you have to note the right wing were also there. This is a unique bipartisan effort, eugenics. Because you had the Liz, as you were saying, the social Darwinists tended to be, I mean, Carnegie, we talked about the Carnegie Endowment. Carnegie actually went to England to get Herbert Spencer and bring him to the United States. So this is this right wing, laissez-faire, no regulations, don't, don't you touch our businesses. They had their own reasons for getting into this. So it was a, you know, it was, it, the progressives said, we're going to clean the slums, we're going to clean the outside, and we're going to clean people's inside. You know, that, they had the arrogance to say that. The, the laissez-faire people said, hey, this is social Darwinism. We are going to do the, you know, the Lord's work here by just making sure that those workers and those people, and by the way, we don't want the Italians in because they tend to you know, do labor unions and the Irish. We, they tend to be anarchists. We, we want nice people who are going you know, to obey, you know? If labor unions were very anti-immigrant, very strongly, oh, yeah, as yeah, they are, yeah, remain yeah, today yeah. to a large degree. But you were telling me, Dan, that uh, Irish uh, uh, American uh, urban ones did oppose it, and a questioner asked, were there any religious leaders who spoke out against eugenics? And I gather, Paul, that some of the conservative denominations did speak out the Catholic against Church. Well, you know, this, this is a very difficult thing to parse in, in a clean way. Um, there is a series of words here we use that have tremendously broad meanings, progressivism being one of them. Historians can't really agree what that was. There's a lot of brands at a different times. It morphs into different things. Same thing for eugenics. Eugenics is enormously popular, not because of sterilization, not because of the things we know about from Hitler, but because it was the promise of healthy babies at a time when babies died one in six in England. Um, so it's very difficult to wrap your head around what the word meant to average people. But I think that the issue of was this a left-right thing, was this a Democrat-Republican thing, was this uh, uh, conservatives versus liberals, it's, it's impossible to do that too. I recently finished a piece that that identifies by name every person who introduced a bill and every person who sponsored a bill that passed for sterilization, so there are 32 of them, and every governor that signed one or vetoed one, and they break out roughly equally between Democrats and Republicans, between left and right, between people who call themselves progressives and people who didn't. So it's very difficult to tease it out that way. I don't, I don't think that I, that I could put my finger on it and say, and the religious side, I, I would say the same thing. There is clearly a, 
um, uh, pushback from Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholicism that is subdued up until the 1930s. The Pope comes out with an encyclical and says, this is no good, we don't want sterilization. And everyone else gets in line. But before that, there's a little bit of movement. But the Roman Catholics are the one, the one group that are the clearly the most against um, eugenics in the early years. And very pro-immigration. And well. very pro-immigration, because you're actually talking about people who are coming from the, those countries like Italy. Uh, <clears throat> Those of us who you know, go back to the old country to see these places, that's a good point to make, yeah. <laughs> uh, in any event, I don't think, I think that um, we have had some excellent uh, research and, and writing on the mainline Protestant groups that supported eugenics. And we've, we've also started to get some, some really uh, pointed research from people in the evangelical movement who are writing about the history of evangelicalism and eugenics. Uh, and it's clearly, uh, not, it's more complex than we could summarize in 10 minutes. Yeah, and, so, and socialism and eugenics. There's a history of socialists supporting eugenics. We think of socialism as progressive today, but uh, it was uh, con conformed with eugenics in the past. I think, to me, the question is, what is your position on the relationship between biology and social inequality? And that is a question that scientists today, whether they're liberal or conservative, debate. Is social inequality caused by innate biological differences? Or do, does social inequality come from structural inequities? Uh, and the, exactly whether we can determine someone's social position based on their genes, there, there is a resurgence of interest in that, and a lot of that interest is on the part of who we would think of as liberal scientists today. So, and, and, and among those liberal scientists, there's quite a debate about it. And so uh, sometimes those liberal scientists sound a lot like the conservative scientists who used to say that uh, people are poor or otherwise disadvantaged because of their genes, uh, but they would distinguish themselves, the, the liberal ones, from those. So it does get very complicated, but I think we have to ask ourselves, what is required for social justice? What's the ethical approach to this, rather than assume that someone in one political party or the other is going to hold that position? Because you can't know for sure. There, there, there's so, I, I, there are just so many good questions that I want to put a few more on the table. Uh, and, and this one is for you, Andrew, because uh, it's raised by the film. What constitutional or legal uh, interpretations did Judge Gassell rely on in forcing the Nixon to, administration to stop its sterilization? Great question. Yeah, it's good. Just quickly, in the film, uh, you saw Ruth Hubbard, the late Ruth Hubbard, yeah. who's one of the great scientists. Yeah. We have these great scientists in the film who completely take apart this, yeah. the pseudoscience of, of a gene for intelligence or a gene for poverty. And by the way, we talk about the Great Society programs with Sergeant Shriver leading the war on poverty and the other welfare things we talked about and, and the other programs in, uh, that were so extraordinary, including legal services, those of sort of lawyers love that, 40% drop in poverty. Well, nobody was genetic engineering. It was a 40% drop in poverty because of social programs. So if you want an answer, it's not like it's not available. It, it's there. I agree. So, so let's just you know, look at the facts. And versus, as I said, we take apart with these great scientists all this nonsense that you're hearing today about genes for this or genes for that. It doesn't, it's, it's all pseudoscience. But the Gazelle, actually, he took apart the government's arguments. The government arguments said it's perfectly OK to have a parent consult for a minor. 
or have a parent consult for, for a, a, somebody who's not confident, a certain age not confident. You said, why? How's that true? No, that's not consent. So the answer is no. You don't get to sterilize them at all, which would have meant no sterilization for the Ralph sisters, right? And then for the other people that said, no, they have to, be, they have to consent. Weinberger's ad hoc regulations that the gazelle's looking at. And he said, well, wait a minute. You say consent. What if you're consenting because you're being coerced because they're taking away? You need to say, not only no, consent, no coercion. I mean, so he lays out what those rules have to be and says no more dollars. But I love the way he sort of said, wait a minute, that's not consent if a parent consents for, and there's a later case, by the way. But, you know, uh, and it's certainly not consent if you're coerced into consent, consenting. So it was, it, that, that's the, the sort of the gravamen of, of his, his decision. Okay. Uh, Dan, you started with Queen Victoria, and this question asks, can you separate social Darwinism from the teachings of Charles Darwin? Well, one of the interesting things is that Charles Darwin never heard the term social Darwinism. Social Darwin, uh, uh, Herbert Spencer never heard the term social Darwinism. That's really an invention in the 1940s, first used by Richard Hofstadter, uh, in fact. Uh, mm. the, uh, Spencer precedes Darwin. Spencer writes uh, his social statics, I think, in 1851, 1852. He says survival of the fittest. That's his phrase. That's not Darwin at all. So that, that's just, I, I bring it up to indicate that there was, there was a, 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 a bubbling ferment that was challenging all sorts of, you know, of, of accepted fact and accepted social policies. Spencer also said, you know, every, and this was very common among the American eugenicists the, the, uh, uh, on the right, he said, you know, every penny we, we spend on charity is only perpetuating the inferiors in our culture. And, we, and ch charity itself is destroying what we have. It's, welfare is a terrible thing. Uh, so so in, in this period, you, you have a struggle, a quest for finding answers through analytical means that had never been used before. Some of the answers they found were phenomenally great, Darwin, and some of them were really terrible. Great, great to remind us about uh, Herbert Spencer and social statics. And Holmes, of course, in his Lochner dissent, also memorably said, the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. And you see that Holmes' incredible gift for aphorism, which served him so well in Lochner, doomed his reputation in Buck and Bell because the three generations of imbeciles line has unfailingly defined him. I just want two more questions on the table. We've got to do it. One, there, there are two on Buck, and we'll give them to Paul. Is Buck the 20th century equivalent of Dred Scott in Supreme Court history? And, 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 and did uh, Butler dissent because of his Catholicism? Uh, I, I would be happy at, at putting uh, you know, Dred Scott and Buck in the same hall of shame. Um, I, think they, I think they both qualify in different ways. Um, as to Butler, I mean, I write in my book that, he's, that Butler's a peculiar character in lots of ways, but the, the story that, that, uh, that I found about him, which I didn't know before I wrote the book, was that Butler had a brother um, who became quite wealthy and apparently had a child by a servant girl who was in his home who was, who was uh, spirited away so that nobody would know about it. And when his brother died, Butler, the justice, was the, um, was the person who was in the executor of his will. And all of them, and this, this hit the newspapers, it became a great scandal, and she was finally paid off and sent away. The most of the money went to the children 
um, uh, of, of uh, Pierce Butler's brother. So that's the only inkling we've ever had of, of a reason, and I'm not sure what reason there is there. Maybe he felt, you know, we could, we could speculate, but it would only be speculation that, that he had some soft spot for people like Carrie Buck. Um, who had been raped and... But, but wouldn't, isn't it simple enough to think, just as a, the, the Catholic opposition to abortion, is that the state can't interfere in the process of reproduction? It, it, certainly, it certainly is, except that we have, don't have any evidence of that either. And it's 1927, not 1931. Oh, you want evidence. You're a law <laughs> It's true. It's true. That about? All right, we have one minute left, and this is a very large question, but it's the subject of Dor Dorothy's paper. Mm -hmm. So the last word will be to you, and it's okay. the important question, are designer babies the next step of eugenics? Well, I think that if we think of designer babies as being the solution to social problems, it has those same flaws. And also if we think of what the images of designer babies, what, are, what makes a designer baby, what makes a perfect baby, we see the importation of all of these racist and sexist and ableist notions of what is a perfect child. Just look at the pictures. If you Google designer baby, you're going to probably come up with a baby with blonde hair and blue eyes that has some indication they're super smart, they have a high IQ, and they don't have any disabilities. And I think we really have to question, what are we saying? when we call that baby the ideal, what are we saying about children that don't meet that ideal? And also, how is that an answer to the problems that we're facing as human beings? What about social change? Will this replace social change? In addition to all the questions of who will have the ability to have autonomy over creating these babies, and who will have the, the resources, the money, to be able to do it. So there are so many questions of inequality and ethics that go into the very concept of a perfect baby that are very much parallel to all the trouble we've been talking about today about the dangerous idea of eugenics. Ladies and gentlemen, the Constitution is not always for the cheerful, but, <laughs> but for educating us about this dark but crucially important period in the constitutional history. Please join me in thanking our panelists. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. 